You're listening to The Recovered Life Show, the show that helps people in recovery live their best recovered lives. And here is your host, Damon Frank. Welcome back to The Recovered Life Show, episode 94, Monday, April 4th, 2022. Here with my co-pilot, Christina Dennis. How you doing, Christina? I am doing great. How are you doing, Damon Frank? Happy Monday. Happy Monday to you. We're Monday bright. You know, we love Mondays here because we get super excited. Mm-hmm. It's a brand new week in recovery. And we're alive. Another week. Beautiful weekend. Beautiful weekend. I'm looking forward to this week. Absolutely. Well, I hope you had a great week. And I hope everybody listening to us had a great weekend. And we have a really great show for you uh, today. It's going to be good. We're talking about some really great addiction and recovery topics that maybe people don't talk about in your everyday conversation. So I think it's going to be a, a great conversation today. Yes. Hang tight. And this this show is being brought to you by Recovered Life contributors and people like you. Like, share, and follow, and leave us a comment so we can keep bringing you the content that you enjoy, as well as uh, visiting info.recoveredlife.us. You can leave a donation that allows us to keep producing the show and helping others and join the network. Once again, that's info.recoveredlife.us. Yes. Thank you so much for mentioning that, Christina. We'd also like to thank everybody who's listening on Spotify. We've had a large uh, increase of, of, of listens and downloads on Spotify, and we love bringing on, you know, new channels and new people so that we can get this recovery message out. You know, this is all about how to live your best recovered life. That's why we do the show. And we're so glad that you're with us today. Uh, look, Christina, We've got a good show in order. We're we're talking about some stuff that's really, really cool. And for the first segment, I wanted to kind of talk about traveling sober. Traveling sober. I read this article um, and it was from USA Today. It was by uh, a person named Taylor Repan. And he wrote this article about, you know, how traveling sober can be tricky, especially for people new in recovery. Well, first, I want to say that's awesome that we're getting articles about that, you know, that people are actually being becoming aware of the fact that they may want to travel sober or if you are a sober individual like myself, you know, you may not think about it. So I love the points that they brought up. You know, uh, I, I'm very excited to travel and have been traveling sober for s- some time now. But I remember that first couple of trips and wondering, you know, oh, wait as I was packing my suitcase, which is a little too late if you're traveling with somebody. So I love the points that they made. And I hope that people will uh, will make sure that they think about this before they plan that summer trip now that we're all traveling again. Yes, yes. You know, I, I you know, I wanted to do this, this segment because, you know, what I've found, this is, my, this is my experience in, in recovery is that traveling sober unless you're traveling with other sober people but even if you are could could be very daunting yep and i think that people don't really talk about it a lot um and i think that the big thing is especially if this is a first vacation that you've had or the first business trip that you've had or the first you know trip home we talked about this in holiday rescue we talked about sure. this all through the holidays that the whole new sober traveling thing or even if you're an old dog like me traveling when you know when you're sober there are certain challenges that the non-sober person doesn't have 
Absolutely. And, you know, to be fair, sometimes you'd be traveling with, you know, typical drinkers that are non-alcoholic people and they may let loose a little more on vacation. So it's certainly worth thinking about. It's certainly worth having a plan and understanding, you know, visiting home, being on a business trip. If you have had behaviors that are constant. Let's say you were a person who drank on vacation, who drank, you know, oh, I don't have to work, woohoo, and maybe even let down some of your behaviors or let down some of your barriers. This might actually surprise you. It might, there might be a true trigger in this. Yeah, I love this. And for the people that are listening uh, on the podcast, we just brought up on the screen, this uh, USA Today article, and it is written by Taylor Repan. And it's interesting because it goes down, it talks about traveling triggers, right? And about how preparation can be. Now, I'm going to tell you, I was just on a trip. I was just on a trip. And what I found was that, you know, I was in a situation that all of a sudden a lot of people were drinking kind of heavily. Right, right. That's what I mean. Yes. I have experience with this. And I think it does help if you have experience because you you know what your boundaries are. And I think that the first part of traveling sober is if you're around people that don't know if you're sober, because many of the people in the circles that I'm around, especially in business or, you know, through something that I might be doing personally, I'm put together with people. I don't feel like I need to tell them I'm sober. Uh, it's not something that I really need to do. Right. Right. Uh, it's just not appropriate at the time. There's no reason to really do that. But like I was at a dinner the other day and people, everybody was drinking and somebody had mentioned that I had gotten an iced tea, but did, wasn't really specific about it. So I didn't bring it up now for me, no big deal because I always, I have a way that I could check myself to make sure that I've done what I need to do to make sure that I don't accidentally pick up. Right. So I don't, I'm not living in fear, but I do, I will tell you, Christina, I remember the first couple times traveling sober and it was quite terrifying uh, being in those situations. Well, and I think that you mentioned the first part that's most important. You have a plan. And so the time to think about what you're going to do on vacation if you are in recovery is before you go on vacation. Yes. And yes. and to really take some time to figure out who's going to be there. Um, are there people in the party that have sobriety or understand that you have sobriety? And the article goes on to explain, you know, first thing is a plan uh, where this one person that they interviewed had code words with their partner that I'm getting uncomfortable, I need to go somewhere, I need to stop, or I need to take a break. And I thought that was really great that they had discussed it prior to. And we talk about yeah. it in Holiday Rescue Plan, for sure. Have a buddy. If you can have a buddy, have a buddy that's somebody there that knows what's going on with you. The wingman is always really good. I think the wingman, and one of the things that they mention in this article is know when and how to leave the situation that challenges your sobriety. And I think this is really cool. There are times that even if other people might feel uncomfortable, Christina, that you just have to walk away. But I Absolutely. love how they set this up about New Orleans. Like New Orleans is not a place that I go, quote, to hang out without a plan. Of like course. I don't go to a barbershop. I'm going to leave with a haircut eventually. Right. So yes. I think it really comes into the planning of it. Like I'm going to, I'm going to take you back to a situation where th- this was something where I got a little bit over my head in early sobriety. I had um, actually, I'd had several years. It was like, I did several years, but it was during a holiday and a bunch of members of my family wanted to do a wine tasting. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And they were all very uncomfortable and they had a limo. They did the whole thing. And I like nature 
and I like gardening. So vineyards are interesting to me just in the whole sense of the agricultural uh, part of it, right? And so I, you know, I had a plan when I went and the people knew that I was so right. But towards the end of the day, I have to tell you, it was, it was a little daunting. Not that I felt like I was going to go out, but it was just old. It was it like, was. okay, enough already, right? Like, I get it. They're going to go in and drink and I can't, right? And it, it was like thinking back, I probably would have just been better hanging out with my nieces and nephews, taking a bowling, going somewhere else not going on that wine tasting, right? Because I wasn't going to taste wine. It was upfront that I wasn't. Everybody knew. No one was challenging me, but it's not really an appropriate place for me to be. Like, what? why would I do it if I could do something else? So true. So true. And and you always have to wonder if people feel like you're judging them because you're not drinking. And I'll tell you, it gave me some pretty good insight to some of the behaviors I used to have. And so I would recognize, wow, I used to be this person, you know, that went beyond what was okay and continued. And you're not saying that that wasn't okay, but I could see myself in that situation. The second part of it is have a way home and have a key to the place you're staying. And I thought yes. that is so smart before you leave to go out so that if you do need to excuse yourself, it's seamless. You don't have to be sitting around waiting for a ride and you don't have to. And now we have Uber and we have the Lyft and we have all kinds of ways to get home. But having that key, I mean, that's a very smart thing to discuss either at check-in if you're staying at a hotel, you know, you have a second set of keys made, or if you're saying, let's say at an Airbnb, you have access to where you're staying so you can leave. And it's been yes. talked about prior to. There is nothing very, wrong. Very, you, smart. you have to protect your sobriety. And if you're getting very uncomfortable, smart. you do it. Yeah. And you know, and the thing is about this too, is that this is the key. I think you have to know where you're going and what you're doing. Like Las Vegas, early sobriety in Las Vegas wouldn't really be something that I necessarily would do, right? Like, because now I did it after I was sober, like I went to Las Vegas, but mm -hmm. the people that I was with, I trusted, I had a wingman, I did the whole thing. But at the time, Las Vegas was just, it was all centered around drinking. It was all right. kind of centered around that. So for me to go do that, it just, it, it, it didn't make sense. There's other things. You know, one of the things that talks about is planning the kind of all natural buzz. It's like, Really, if you're on vacation, how do you get that vacation high? They talk about, which I right. think is kind of not great, you know, a great Language. vernacular. But <laughs> but it's but it's interesting because it's true. It's like like if you like hiking, if you like things, don't put yourself in a situation that it's really really bad. Um, and you know, we've talked about the non-alcoholic beverages, but you know, before on the show, we haven't talked about the mini bar so much on right. the show or the mini bar in the room now. You and I both coach uh, yes. people who are transitional, meaning they're coming from a life of drinking and using drugs right. to a sober lifestyle. They've committed to a sober lifestyle. So we're helping them during the transition with their therapist and with their whole mm -hmm. team that they have. And I will tell you, this one takes a lot of people out. Just the thought of the mini bar of it being there right. at night, right. like, hey, and there's alcohol right here. There is. And why have it right at your disposal if you're struggling in that moment? It's very easy to call ahead and arrange for it, not to be in your room at all or to arrange for non-alcoholic drinks to be stocked there. I mean, there's a lot of things that you could do so that it isn't right there. And I agree yes. with all of those things. Do it. I mean, many people don't drink 
um, for different reasons. You know, it's not all just because we have alcoholism. However, we need to not feel shame about taking care of ourselves. This is a boundary that we can do with a stranger over the phone. Please do not have alcoholic beverages in my room. And that's it. No explanation needed. The hotel will be more than happy to take out the booze and uh, or stock it with specialty drinks. You know, one of the things that um, one of the things that with the mini bar that I think people get upset about, and this is just something that I've learned in the coaching on the coaching side of it, is that a lot of times that you're trapped, you don't want to be in a position where you're vulnerable and trapped. That's right. why cruise lines, for example, people have a lot of problems on cruise lines that are sober. But I think it's the I think it's setting it up right, Christina. This is the key. Um, calling ahead saying, you know what, why worry about it? Why be stressed out? If you feel that, you know, like I remember in early sobriety because I, you know, I was at the point when I came in that I didn't make a decision whether I was going to drink or not. I was just drinking, right? Like, mm -hmm. so I was like one of those people. So when I got sober, I had a big fear that all of a sudden, although it wasn't based in reality, you know, but I still had this fear that, Hey, I'm just going to all of a sudden be drinking, right? Like, so at that point, removing that, it gave me, I didn't feel trapped. I didn't feel trapped, right? Knowing that I had a wingman, like you said, I didn't feel trapped. Being in a situation where I knew that there were sober people. But I'm going to throw one thing out there, Christina, that I've worked into my thing in business. Which I is? actually would go to 12-step meetings. Yes. I would hook up with other people that I didn't know in recovery. And that brought a whole new dimension to traveling for me sober. It is so fun. I also have visited 12-step meetings all over the country, and it is so cool to meet people. They can give you the best recommendations for restaurants. It's really, really fun. My husband and I went to Big Bear a couple of years ago and went to the meeting that was going on there. And it was great. We met locals. We learned what was the right restaurant to go to. And it was just a lot of fun. And so they, it's very easy to find. There are meetings, I think, in every city. And it's certainly worth it. I mean, whether it's Friends of Bill W or, you know, it's it's another kind of 12-step meeting, there are places for us to go. And why not? I always feel better after a meeting and I can enjoy my vacation that much more when I get a little peace yes. and serenity. Yes, me too. And you know what? One of the things that I love about this, and I remember I had to take an extended trip. Uh, it was a family situation where I had to take an extended trip to a city outside of where I live. And it was interesting because I was going to be there for quite some time. And I worked in, I went to a meeting and I hooked up with somebody that was there and they told me about, Hey, these are the meetings that you want to go to. These are the places that you want to get. These are the really good things. And I ended up, you know, really making long-term friendships with some of these people that I spoke with for years. And anytime they were like, Hey, are you going to be in the city? And I, and I, and I had somebody there. But one of the things that you talk about that I love, and I and I, I picked this up from you, is have your phone stocked with people that are on your preferred dial list, right? Yes. Have some sober people that you have a relationship with, or whether that's a sponsor or a friend or a peer person that you know that you can have a conversation with if you feel that you're in trouble and you can instantly reach out and have a conversation with. 
Well, traveling is stressful, even if it's a vacation and fun. So you really should have that accountability partner that you can check in with. Even if you feel 100% like I've got this, I don't have any problems, checking in and connecting, peer support is high on the list of allowing somebody to stay sober and being able to maintain your sobriety. So I called a sandwich call. If you're going into something difficult, um, if you're doing something stressful, mm -hmm. call somebody beforehand when you're feeling good and deposit that into your you know, emotional bank account so that you know somebody knows where you are and you have a certain amount of accountability. I think that when we get off the grid, we get in trouble. Yes, yes. And one of the things I think that people in recovery don't have a luxury of is like, I, I think if you are a, you know, I would even say this with like people who are very religious, they might be, you know, a churchgoer on Wednesday or Sunday. They mm -hmm. never miss it. But when they go on vacation, right. maybe for a week or two weeks, they'll totally unplug from any kind of routine. I found that being sober, you don't really have that luxury. There's a minimal routine that you have to have. Like for me, I have to have my spiritual practice. I have to have kind of a check-in with myself about how I'm feeling. I need to know if I'm going to be around, if I end up in a situation where people are drinking a lot. You know, I'm going to give you one too, an early sobriety that I've had with some clients that that they feel very uncomfortable with is the, the plane is yes. being trapped on a plane next to somebody who's drinking very, very heavy because just the smell of that, right, sets people off sometimes. Sure and they does. Start feeling, it's like, well, no one knows here that I'm sober. I'm trapped in the middle seat. I'm with two people that are drinking heavily. All I smell is wine and bourbon, right? right? That's a really bad place to be. What, what do you tell your clients when, when they're in situations that maybe they can't get out of right away? You can't just get up and leave well in, in, in the in the middle of that absolutely well first of all have a snack with you and something that you enjoy so you can stock it you can purchase you know a bottle of water or a coffee you can have a snack so that you can you know, work on your self-care and soothe your nervous system, breathing, staying in the moment, having a mindful practice, you know, having a plan, a book, something that you can do because our yeah. when we're traveling, our nervous system is going to be high regardless, even if you are a really great traveler, but many of us aren't. And so take the time, you know, we're speaking to somebody this week uh, who does not travel well on planes and had not taken a sober plane trip. Well, she started telling the truth. We started going through meditations off of that, that insight, you know, meditation timer. And we came up with some things that she could do the minute she got on the plane. And that's having a snack, checking in with somebody beforehand, making sure you're taking the deep breaths, making sure that you have your hands busy. And if you have to change seats, advocate for yourself. That is incredibly important that you set boundaries. And, uh, you know, I know that they, they're not excited about doing that, but above all, protect your sobriety. Absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that, um, one of the things you mentioned food, and I think food, what I've found is that food uh, has kind of two parts to it. One is, I don't really think that when we're hungry, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, those mm -hmm. are when we don't perform the best in recovery, right? right? So when you're traveling, like I found it myself the other day, I was like, oh, I jumped on this plane. I'm traveling. I'm going to be gone for three hours. It's during lunch. I didn't really have a breakfast, but right. that's not a good position for me to be in. I then have a soda, maybe some candy, 
some junk, right? Like that's not good. And so my thinking isn't as clear and I'm not as sharp and emotionally as emotionally grounded if I haven't eat, eaten properly. So I think the one is like planning that snack, I think is really, really good. So you have the blood sugar to really, I mean, I know it's simple, but no, just it's that, true. Like, that tip that you just give, it's just like to have the blood sugar to be able to do it. The other thing I found too with traveling is diet and actually what's in the food. You know, anyone who has been sober for any period of time has been given a piece of cake, a candy, yes. a, a piece of fish or something, and you take a bite of it and you realize, oh, this is marinated in wine. Very right. Grandma, right? it might be cooked out. Yeah. Tiramisu, right? Which yes. is not cooked out. So it's like, you know, the there is a bit of anxiety, I think, for sober people, especially when they go to a foreign place like mm -hmm. that maybe does not even speak the language their right. language of, of feeling that, oh my gosh, I'm going to get something and I really can't communicate that I can't drink. There isn't, I can't really communicate that. Right. But I do find, and this is the tip that I find is that I've been in situations before with that. And, and I tell them up front, I say, I'm allergic to alcohol. So true. I say That's that and, I mean. they, and they get that. They get that. They go, oh, allergy. And it's not, it's not untrue. I am allergic to alcohol. Right. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I am allergic to alcohol. It's not an untrue statement. It isn't. But it's much more of a food statement. No, I'm allergic to that. I break out. It's not uh -huh. really good. You know, right. they don't need to know that, you know, you might break out in handcuffs. Right. But, <laughs> you, you know, it, it, they don't need to know the details of that if you if you don't if you don't do that. Um, and you know, in holiday rescue, we talk a lot about that. I, I should I should actually put a little plug out for that because we talk a lot about how to maneuver out of those work situations and that kind of stuff. But I just found by just basically saying, hey, I'm allergic to alcohol. I've done that before. And the person that I was with did not know I was sober. They go, oh, that sucks. Sorry for you. <laughs> I go, yeah, it's really bad for me. I can't. I It's really bad. Like I can't I can't have anything without calling it. That takes away right? the whole moral. That takes away the whole moral judgment because if you think about, it, if you said I'm allergic to peanuts, people aren't going to be pushing peanuts on yeah, you. People aren't going to be like, go in anaphylactic <laughs> shock. We we want to like here's some shellfish, sneaking you know it I mean? in people your aren't yeah, be pushing it on you, sneaking yeah. it in and your I soda think, or something. Totally, you know, and people are allergic to gluten and people, and that whole allergy thing is much more acceptable. And I tell people this too, like especially like when I coach business people, I tell them, I say, look. Just be upright. Say, hey, I have an allergy for that. I can't have anything that goes without. I break out. Mm -hmm. You do. Yeah. You get the phenomenal craving. I break out. I really can't have anything. It's dangerous for me. That's it. That's all you have to say. And people so will go out of their way to be able to do this, right? Uh -huh. And for me, like when I've always been in high pressure situations where I have to think about other things, whether it's business trips or something, and I've been in a lot of those where people are drinking heavy, I have a wingman. Like that's my big thing with this is I have a wingman that knows that I'm sober and they intercept the free shots. Yeah. They intercept the free cocktail and I'll say, Oh my God, I can't like, I'm so sorry. I'm not drinking tonight, mm -hmm. but my friend Stan or Sue, she totally wants it. Can she have it? That would make me so happy. Such and good stuff. they take it. They just grab it for, right. I've right? been in those situations where, um, and it's always good to have that wingman around or wing I woman.
And I think it's really important to point out, and I want to say this, you can have, I have had more fun on my sober vacations than I ever had on the ones that weren't sober. You know, the issues that, that plagued me uh, with, with uh, drinking alcoholically, I love hangover free vacations. They are worth it. You can get up and do everything that you want to do. There is no repair time. You don't feel nauseous. You're not embarrassed about what you might've done the night before. It is worth it. So I just want you to know I've been on a ton of vacations since I've gotten sober and it is much better than you can even imagine. It's worth it. Absolutely. It is worth it. And that's what we, that's why we wanted to have this segment because we know we're going, you know, we're into April now. It's right. the first week of April that we, that, that we're into. A lot of people are starting with COVID. They were like, we can't travel. We can't travel. I've traveled more in the couple last couple of weeks. People are traveling and we hear this in the recovered life discussions, right? We hear this, that, uh, that people are nervous yes. about being able to go out, especially newly sober. Yes. Especially new, you know, and this whole thing of being trapped and having a panic attack, but there's simple solutions. Like we just talked, you know, we were mentioning cruises just to end it with this, but we were mentioning cruises, you know, cruises have a policy that I've heard. I've never been in this situation on a cruise, but that you can actually go to the very front and say, Hey, I'm sober. Mm -hmm. uh, if there's anyone here that needs to connect with me over yes. that period of time, I'm good. And they actually have names yes. of people that check in that are involved sure in do. step groups or sober, whatever. And it's there, you know, like one of a good friend that I met was actually at a party where a lot of people were drinking and somebody just said, Hey, you know, Damon doesn't drink. And I ended up becoming very, very good friends. I found out he, this was the first party that he had ever gone to sober. Wow. He'd never been in a party sober before. And he was like 40 something years old. He'd never been in one since he'd been a child sober, not drinking. Wow. And just being able to connect with somebody else and, you know, that had sobriety meant the world to him, you know, because I was just like, no, this is going to be a problem. We're going to leave here sober. And yes. we're going to leave here having fun. Yes. And that's a message. We're going to have fun and we're going to leave sober and we're not going to be tortured by the whole thing. Whether or not these people drink excessively or whatever doesn't have anything to do with us. We're going to have a great time and we're going to live our lives and we're going to leave sober. And, you know, yep. and I think that's the whole thing about this is like, you know, I say, don't get over your skis. Don't get in too deep. Don't get yourself in a position where you can't get out of it. But you have to take some risks in sobriety and you have to learn and grow. And traveling is just one of those things. It sure is. And it, and it will be okay. You just don't pick up no matter what. No matter what. Christina, this has been a great segment. I absolutely love having these deep topics with you and kind of diving into kind of the nitty gritty that people don't talk about a lot. You right. know, I want to just take a moment before we go into our next segment to talk about something else that people don't talk about, which is how to live their best recovered life. A lot of people are sober, but they don't really feel that they're living their best recovered life. They're maybe listening to us on the podcast or on YouTube live here on the live show. And they really are seeking a community of people who are, are diving into these kind of conversations. So we'd like to invite everybody to recovered life. And it's, it's a great community, it's a private community. And we put this together primarily because look, you don't necessarily want to go on Facebook and, you know, say that you're sober. It's like none of people's business, right? Like you want to be able to do this in, in a way 
on your terms. So we put together this next level discussion and it's a private community and you can get to it at recoveredlife.us. Join 100% for free. You've got great contributors on there like Christina Dennis, myself, and dozens of other people, exclusive content and a community of like-minded people that want to live their best recovered lives. You can join totally for free by going to recoveredlife.us. That's recoveredlife.us. Christina, we got a really great segment coming up after this short break. So everybody hold tight. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Recovered Life Show. And welcome back. Stay tuned for our second segment about uh, whether oxytocin can affect a sex addiction. This is something we're going to talk about that's big. Um, before we do that, though, I want to remind everybody that this show is being brought to you by Recovered Life contributors and people like you. So make sure you like, share, follow, and leave us a comment on this show as well as join us at info.recoveredlife.us. You can leave a donation that allows us to keep doing this kind of work and helping others and join the network for free. So Damon, are you ready for this second segment? Uh, no, you know, no, Christina, I'm not ready for the second segment. <laughs> to be with you. I, when you told me that you want to talk about this, I was like, oh man, really? Seriously? We're going to... We're going to dive into the SEX talk. Yes. I felt like I was a teenager and my parents wanted to have a birds and the bees conversation with me. Well, I have uh, been around the program and work at, uh, with a lot of codependents of sex addicts. And I think that even though we have known for 20 plus years that there is actual sexual addiction, it still isn't discussed as much as it should be. And I loved seeing this particular article because it talks about the fact that the medical community is finally starting to pay attention. Sexual addiction is so much more attached to shame than even alcohol addiction. And it is real. And it destroys people's lives. And I love that we have more recovery programs about it and that we're able to discuss it. Now, sexual addiction has nothing to really do with sex or love. It is a process that many people, uh, primarily men, start at a very young age learning how to self-soothe. And it is a trauma response. And that is incredibly confusing mm. to some people. You know, I have heard all of the jokes is, you know, sex addiction real. I think they're just a cheater, all of these really painful things. But people who are recovering from sexual addiction can share with you that it is actually a trauma response from their childhood. Well, just to just to set this up too, we're talking about a article, Does the Love Hormone Help Drive Sex Addiction? And this is an article uh, that was uh, put out by U.S. News and World Reports by a guy named Robert uh, Predit. And um, he dives into this, this topic about is, is sexual addiction kind of a thing? And are, are there hormones that are linked right. to that? I have right. to ask you, Christina, because I'm going to be honest with you. Until you know, I started Recovered Life, 
I, you know, I'd heard about sexual addiction. I'd never, mm-hmm. it was, it, I, I honestly, I didn't know really anything about it. I didn't know that people suffered from it necessarily. I thought it was just an impulse control issue for, for the most part. You don't really hear about it a lot, right? Like you don't like every once in a while I would hear about like, oh, this person is a sex addict or this We've person. We've heard about it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't really know. You know, I didn't really know what that, that meant as much. And then when we started doing some segments on this, it's very, very interesting. And, you know, the thing is, is that with addiction and, and we talk about this in recovered life discussions that we've got Monday through Thursday, um, you know, addiction, we always think about as kind of two parts, especially with alcohol addiction, right? Alcoholism, drug addiction, the physical reaction that we have, like different from our fellows. Right. And then there's the emotional and thinking component. So that's kind of put into that. It seems that there, that is going on here. When, when I dove into this, uh, article, uh, from, from, uh, us news and world reports, it seems like that's something very similar that's going on with sex addiction. Well, and what they said, just to explain the study that they had, they tested the hormone and it's often called the love hormone or the cuddle hormone oxytocin, which happens between uh, people once they've had sex or it happens between parents like a mother and her child. And it tends to be a hormone that women have plenty of during the childbearing age because it actually allows us. I mean, you will have physical pain if you have been a mother when you are separated from your child. It actually is part of the genetic code, right? Oxytocin Mm. soars and it stays up for a year or two. And then we have that old, you know, familiar type of feeling like the love is going away. Well, it's a necessary biological response in order to bond with people. And what they discovered was that in sex addicts, male sex addicts, that it was actually increased. And when that's increased, the connection that you need, that physical part of sexual addiction, whether it's compulsive masturbation or it's affairs or or whatever, it is driving that need. And they literally could see that it was different. They took 68 men and uh, 64 men that were known sex addicts, self-proclaimed, and 38 men who had typical sex drives. And there was an actual difference between this hormone within the men that were sex addicts. And I thought, mm. wow, there we can literally point to something physical and see that oxytocin was more pronounced in them. Therefore, they're driving for connection because your body literally hurts. And so and how does that work into the, how does that work in Christina with the, with the addiction kind of thinking issue? Is it so, cause what, what it basically says here is that the pituitary gland uh, plays a huge role in it. Yes. You've got this oxytocin that's coming in. You have this impulse control problem, I assume, right? right? So people with sex addiction, they have this impulse control problem then once that once that uh, once that is reduced in your body yes it, is that when the emotional issue comes on top of the thinking issue that comes in or is it just a total impulse control issue well that's what i mean it's uh, sex it, it's uh, sex addiction has very little to do with sex and connection it's a way to kind of shortchange that need right mm-hmm. and that's why with sexual addicted partners Um, they often will reject their spouses, which is very interesting. So it's a certain type of shameful 
kind of action that they want to take. That's the emotional part. That's the compulsion part of it. And after a little bit, they sometimes need to continue to increase. So sex addicts will you know, leave clues for their partners to find out. It's a dirty little secret. Not only do we shame sexual behavior in uh, recovery sometimes, we certainly have, you know, sex is messy in the world and it's confusing. And so there are two types of sex addicts. There's a sex and love addict, which wants the entire relationship part. It's about getting the partner or the, the person of interest to fall in love with them because they need that oxytocin. And sometimes that can end once sex has happened. Or there's a sex addict that identifies only as a sex addict who is actually interested in having content in which to masturbate with or to, you know, have a quickie or that's where we get massage parlors involved. And they actually have a compulsion to increase it because the oxytocin hit mm. isn't enough. And so it's a very, very shameful sad, difficult thing to recover from. And I love having conversations with people because if you're within a relationship with a sex addict, who do you share that with? Because we don't understand the actual problem. People will say things like, oh, you should just leave them. You know, what are you doing? If I was cheated on once, I would be done. Or they decide, well, porn isn't cheating. And it's about that whole lack of intimacy, the fear of intimacy. So they exchange actual intimacy with a sexual act, even if it's just a singular sexual act. And they're actually quite afraid of being intimate. And then we find out, of course, codependent partners they're anxiously attaching to them. So it was really, really a serious, complex problem. But people can recover. I know many people who do their service work in sex addiction. They know that they had a problem and they are so happy. They've, they've gained sobriety around it. So when you're when you're working with people, because I know that codependency has a lot. I, 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 can, I just know from, you know, hosting these recovered life discussions right? where there's a lot of men and women that will come in that identify as codependents. Yes. Right. They identify as codependents that tend to be either attracted or uh, with uh, people who have sexual addiction issues. Is, is that what's, what's the connection there? Because it can't be a coincidence because I would no. say probably five to six of the 10 people that we might talk to have a story of either currently or in the remote, in, in the, in the very, uh, in the, in the past, having a relationship with somebody who has a uh, sex addiction. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, we tend to have parents who are sex addicts, you know, for codependence of sex addicts, sex becomes a currency. So we actually believe it's the avenue to get intimacy. At least that's how we're tricking ourselves into believing it. So meeting with a sex addict who wants to devour us, that want, is getting their high off of us is very, very powerful for a codependent. And they believe that it's based on the fact that eventually it will turn into real love. But the dirty little secret behind it all is that codependents are as, are as afraid of an intimate relationship as a sex addict is. And they pick mm. people that somewhere inside of you, you know, this person isn't going to what, want to get to intimate with you. And so it takes a long time for a codependent one to realize it has nothing to do with sexual, uh, with actual sexual intimate 
you know, relationships. It has nothing to do with what they look like or what they do in bed or what they have done in bed. It has very little to do with anything about that person except the fact that they happen to be attracted to a sex addict because of the power that they felt they had over the initial period of the relationship, the beginning. You know, now it is true where codependents have been totally shocked, you know, to find out that their partner is leaving an alternative living an alternative life. But if they get really deep down under and really look at it, they always kind of knew that there was a lack of intimacy. And yeah. it is not unusual for both partners to have very similar traumatic histories that allow them to believe and recognize this is love when it, it yeah, we've done love. a lot. You know, we, I know we've, you know, in past episodes, we've done a lot on intimacy and especially on male intimacy, because it's not talked about as much. Um, it's interesting that you say about the whole connection part of it, you know, just being in recovery. I, I do know that sometimes, you know, when you come in, you might not be a big sugar fan, but you've been drinking a lot. Right. Yes. And then for a period of time, you might get addicted to sugar and right. then that kind of goes away and then carbs. And then that kind of goes away. Right. Is, is sex and love addiction like that too? Could yes. People shift to it real quick and then just say, eh. You know, yes. it's like this, I'm not getting what I want out of this as well. And I've got to give this up. Well, I don't know how many people shift away from it. Sexual addiction become can become incredibly pronounced once alcohol is taken away. Because, you know, alcohol prevents performance. And it usually prevents, you know, that ability to have a relationship very long, you know, very long period with any one person. And when you take that away and this person starts to date, the act of sex actually is a numbing, you know, a certain amount of numbing that comes to it, a certain amount of hormones that come with it that make you feel good. One of the biggest ones is oxytocin. So if people need more oxytocin, having sex with a stranger might be the route that they take. But I don't think that it just goes away. True sex addicts really have to enter into a rehabilitation program. Now, if you're a sex and love addict, then you can work on some things. Sex and love includes a certain kind of relationship. You can work on things, but I'll tell you that it takes peer support. It takes an incredible partner for the two of you to be honest and open about it. The sex addict's partner needs to be going through their own program to understand their codependency around it. And I'll tell you that recovering sex addicts are some of the happiest people because they're no longer at war with themselves. It is not something that they do openly. We're not talking about, you know, somebody that is a, a serial dater or monogamous per se. Mm -hmm. You can talk about somebody who's been in a long-term relationship for a long time, but they have this little secret over here where they consume pornography, which prevents them from being truly intimate with their partner. You know, it uses different parts of the brain, pornography. And I do believe that the more that we talk about sex addiction and the more the medical community recognizes this as a true disorder, the more information we'll get why some people um, are more prone to it. It could be the fact that they actually were involved in a sexual act at a much earlier age than they needed it to be, whether you were exposed. I mean, I remember there was a time I walked into somebody's houses and they had hundreds and hundreds of playboys. And that seems, you know, at the time, I don't remember being in a culture that thought that was dangerous. It was more like, he, 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 you know, this is the way men are. 
Well, actually, it isn't very healthy and it doesn't really help aid, you know, a relationship with the opposite sex or a partner. It can actually impede it because you have shame attached to sex. And then you have somebody yeah. that you love desperately who wants to have sex with you. And you're like, no, 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 not you. We can't do that. Well, I think too, I think that it's something that in the recovery rooms isn't talked about and we see it go down. I mean, yes. look, if anybody's been a part of a big 12 step group, you've seen this go down with both men and women, right? True. And you see the wreckage that it causes. And obviously there's some sort of dysfunction going on there. And I think to identify that maybe, you know, hey, the people that, that maybe have addiction issues might be more prone Yes, this kind of thing, either being coupled with somebody who has a sex addiction issue or become somebody who has a sex addiction issue. I think it's just to be awareness of this is really great. And although these are totally uncomfortable for me, (laughs) it is interesting because I'm learning a lot, you know, because we've learned so much about addiction, you know, um, and it's interesting because in the recovered life uh, discussions, Christina, that we have, we have different people in these discussions. Some people are addicted to love, yes, you know, and you know, what we find, one of the big epiphanies that we find in recovery is people, places, and things aren't going to cure me. They're not going to, they're not going to save me. That's, That's true. not the solution for me. That's an added benefit. People, places, and things of being able to live a sober life. And those are great. Like I, you know, I said today, in a room that we had in the unstuck room or, or last week, I, I'd said in the unstuck room, it's like, I'd much rather drive an expensive car to the mm-hmm. store than a non-expensive car. I'm not going to say that I wouldn't, right? But the expensive car isn't going to fix me. It's right. not going to make something. It's just an expensive car. And that's great if you like expensive cars. But I think this awareness of this, I think this is the big thing. It's like, it seems to be that addiction seems to be a thinking issue too. It starts with the thinking issue before a lot of the times it goes into actually an abuse issue, an abuse of a thing, whether that's alcohol, drugs, sex, people, whatever that might be. And I find it interesting that the more and more we get into the science of addiction and the science of thinking, the more all of these are actually the same. Right. The vice might change. Yes. The thinking is very similar. Very, very similar. There is a a deficit in the person. They feel as if there's a deficit inside of them and they're trying to fix it and, you know, numb away the world and kind of empower themselves through this. But unfortunately, the things that we pick up are very dangerous for us. And that includes sexual addiction. So thank you for allowing me to bring this article to the show and of doing course, this uncomfortable you know, I'm conversation. I'm going to articles that I feel totally uncomfortable with. This isn't, <laughs> this isn't, the, this isn't the first one. But no, Christina, thank you. Because I think that people that are listening to this have been in a situation in recovery where they've realized either themselves or someone else in their group, right? Or Mm -hmm. people that they're around, hey, something's going on with this and it's not quite healthy. And I think that the thing is, is that to identify this early on, to be able to say, it's like, hey, you know what? I'm identifying this now and I can work on this or whatever that, whatever it's going to take to be able to get you to a place of recovery is what you have to do. So thank you so much for bringing this 
to my attention. I think it was really great. Well, look, episode 94 Monday, we got to get along with, we got to get on with the week here. Yes, I'm we do. mention though, before we leave Christina about the exciting discussions that we've been having on clubhouse. Um, you've got three rooms. We know we've, you've got two rooms. I have two rooms right. on clubhouse. It's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 9am Pacific standard time. Every week, rain or shine, we do these amazing things. Monday, we've got uh, This Week in Recovered Life where we make a plan. I host that one. Christina comes on. We have other contributors come on. Powerful room. And then Tuesday, you dive into the whole thinking issue. I sure do. It's our neuro room. And we have all kinds of conversations and experts who come on so that we can understand the science behind addiction, understand the science behind our feelings and emotions. And we just go to that next level. It's a beautiful room. And Wednesday, I do my setting healthy boundaries room, which I believe anybody in recovery is going to benefit no matter what type or substance you are are recovering from, because a lot of the times we use because we don't know how to set healthy boundaries. Um, and yes. it's our true, it's our true codependent recovery room. Then Thursday, we come in with a little high performance coaching with my unstuck room. And that's when we really dive into an area of recovery that people are stuck in. And we come up with a solution within an hour that we're going to start to execute. That's a very powerful room. People really, really, really love it. Um, you know, Last week was amazing. We had such a great time. So guys, Recovered Life discussions, you can join those. Here's what you have to do. Just go to recoveredlife.us. You can sign up, become a member for free. You're going to get access to a ton of content like replays and segments from these shows. Yes, yes. And it's completely free. And once you get there, follow me and say hi. Absolutely. And also follow myself as well. I want to connect with you there and further the discussion on how we can live our best recovered life. Episode 94, Monday, April 4th, 2022 in the can. We will see you guys on Wednesday. Have a great week. Keep the conversation going. Join Recovered Life, a community of like-minded people who are looking to live their best recovered lives. Membership is free and you can apply at recoveredlife.us.